Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Daniel Ferguson. I'm the Head of Adult Learning here at the Royal Academy, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you this evening to tonight's talk, Richard Diebenkorn, A Riotous Calm. So, tonight's lecture is obviously connected to the exhibition, Richard Diebenkorn, which opens to the public on Saturday at the end of this week. So, all that remains is my great pleasure to welcome our guest uh, lecturer this evening, uh, Sarah C. Bancroft, the curator of that exhibition. Sarah is an art historian and uh, a curator, and she's held curatorial posts at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, and also the Orange County Museum of Art at Newport Beach in California, where she, or for whom, she curated the acclaimed exhibition Richard Diebenkorn, the Ocean Park series in 2011-2012. Sarah is the Executive Director of the James Rosenquist Foundation and also the Associate Director Curatorial Affairs for the non-profit Artspace Test Site. So please do join me in giving a very warm welcome to Sarah. It's a really great crowd. Thanks for joining tonight. It's wonderful to see you. I know Diebenkorn is something of a novelty in London, so I'm not going to give a dry academic talk. I'll try to make it more conversational and approachable, and I very much welcome questions at the end of my talk. I like to start my talks on Diebenkorn with a poem. It has nothing to do with Diebenkorn, but does have to do with art. And it's a poem by the great American poet Frank O'Hara called Why I Am Not a Painter. I am not a painter. I am a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I am not. Well, for instance, Mike Goldberg is starting a painting. I drop in. Sit down and have a drink, he says. I drink, we drink. I look up and say, you have sardines in it. Yes, it needed something there. Oh. I go, and the days go by, and I drop in again. The painting is going on, and I go, and the days go by. I drop in. The painting is finished. Where's sardines? All that's left is just letters. It was too much, Mike said. But me, one day I'm thinking of a color, orange. I write a line about orange. Pretty soon it is a whole page of words, not lines. Then another page. There should be so much more, not of orange, of words, of how terrible orange is and life. Days go by. It is even in prose I am a real poet. My poem is, is finished, and I haven't mentioned orange yet. It's 12 poems. I call it Oranges. And one day in a gallery, I see Mike's painting called Sardines. <laughs> and this is Mike Goldberg's painting, Sardines. And as you see, there are no sardines in it. I like this poem because it's about um, process versus intent and the medium versus the message the artist is trying to convey through other means. And this will all make sense by the end of this rather rambling talk, which I hope you enjoy. This exhibition in the space not far from here is a really wonderful, I feel, focused survey of Diebenkorn's career. And it encapsulates his early career abstraction, his mid-career figuration, and his late career abstraction. And these are three works that I think sum up that narrative rather well. All three of these are actually in the Museum of Modern Art, Fort Worth, which was a venue of the Ocean Park exhibition. So the painting at upper left is Urbana Number no. 6. The painting in the middle is Girl with Flowered Background, which has a very uh, Matisse-esque feel to it. 
and then lower right is a glorious Ocean Park painting, number 105. So I thought this would just be a, a, a nice stopping point to show you um, two works that are not in this show, but are evocative of, of the theme of the show. Um, and you'll see throughout my presentation, I'll present works that aren't in the show so that you can see more than what is here, because he was rather prolific. And this is an opportunity for me to kind of imbue you with more imagery. So Richard Diebenkorn was born in the Pacific Northwest, grew up in Northern California, the San Francisco Bay Area, and he attended Stanford University, where in his last year, against his parents' wishes, he studied art. And he, shortly after the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, enlisted in the Marine Corps with the promise that he wouldn't be um, called to duty until after graduation. But he was indeed, in his last year, called to duty. And he and his girlfriend, Phyllis, um, were married shortly before he uh, was called away. And this is an image of their wedding day, and I just love it, and I wanted to share it with you. I actually included this in a previous talk I gave to a very large group of Stanford University alumni, and as you, I really wanted to include it, as obviously Phyllis and, and Richard Diebenkorn had attended that school, but I'm sharing it with you because I love the suit that Phyllis is wearing, <laughs> and I asked her, if this was her going away suit. I don't know if it's a tradition here in the UK, but in the States, you know, you obviously wear a white wedding dress to your wedding, and then during the reception, traditionally, you'll change into the going away outfit, and you'll run away onto your honeymoon. And she said, no, no, you know, it was during the war. There were, they were rationing fabric, so that was my wedding suit, and I think it's rather smart. And uh, they look pretty elegant for, for people in their early 20s, much more elegant than I ever looked at that age. Richard Diebenkorn had somewhat of an itinerant education as a result of enlisting in the Marine Corps and attending officer training um, as part of that decision. He had attended Stanford, and then once he was enlisted, he spent a semester studying at Berkeley, and then he went to training in North Carolina, South Carolina, ultimately was living in Virginia at Quantico, then lived in Hawaii for a while as part of the map-making division and was always looking at exhibitions where he could. On the East Coast, certainly, um, he was traveling from Virginia to DC and looking at a lot of work there at the, Phyllis, at the Phillips Collection, the Corcoran Museum, went to New York, saw a lot of work. And also when he returned to, um, after the war ended and he was um, returning to the States, he was granted his BA from Stanford in recognition of his service and all of the studies he had done at various institutions. Um, and fairly quickly thereafter, he started teaching himself at the California School of Fine Arts, just to give you a sense of how successful he was as a young artist. So in 1947, with his BA in hand, he's teaching at the California School of Fine Arts, and by 1948, he has his first solo exhibition. He's not yet 30. And this exhibition is at the California Palace of the Legion of Honor, and this is a nice vintage photograph of that exhibition of paintings from Sausalito. He was teaching a number of students who were studying on the GI Bill. And when you're teaching, as many of you probably know, especially if you're artists, you give a lot to your students and you have less time to devote to your own studio craft. So eventually he decided it's time for me to go back to school, and he and his family moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he enrolled on the GI Bill um, in the Master of Arts program there. And this is a really nice photograph 
they moved there in 1950, and this is uh, the family, I think, standing in front of the second home they had there in 1952. So um, Richard and Phyllis and their children, Gretchen and Christopher. This is an image of his MA exhibition, which actually took place in 1951. The date here says 52, just ignore that. It was in 1951. And the painting on the right is a, is a very beloved painting called Disintegrating Pig. And the Albuquerque series was one of his abstract periods of art, one of three early abstract series he made, Albuquerque, then Urbana, and finally Berkeley. Um, but there are these moments of figuration where figures seep in, and if you look at this image, if you were to turn the painting upside down, you could more clearly uh, distinguish the, a pig in the image. You see the little ears. They might look like trotters in this image, little feet, but if you turn it upside down, they look like ears and the snout and the mouth, and these disintegrating forms at the top. And I, I just, I love to show this image. I know it was very beloved by the artist's family and particularly his grandchildren, and it now is in the collection of Stanford University. So many more people um, are able to see it in this public collection. Two more works from the Albuquerque series. These are in collections in Southern California, private collections. Diebenkorn was exquisitely sensitive to his environment. And as I go through images of this early abstract work, you'll note the composition, the palette, the tonality changes um, quite significantly. And one of his friends and colleagues from a little later in his life commented that if you move Diebenkorn one mile down the road, it would change his artwork. And I think that's quite evident, not only in these slides, but also in the exhibition. So to give you a sense of the environment in Albuquerque, it's in the, it's a desert, it's a high desert. It's 5,000 feet above sea level, but it's very dry and arid. Um, there's a beautiful mountain range called the Sandia Mountains and a lovely river that runs through it. Agriculture has long been part of the economy. And uh, also there are several Pueblos, Native American Pueblos nearby. Route 66 was built in the 20s through town, so tourism started at that time. Any number of artists have lived and worked in New Mexico on ranches and in various areas, most notably Agnes Martin and um, Georgia O'Keeffe. And uh, so it was not an unknown place for artists and for uh, tourists to travel through. And the environment is, having grown up in a desert myself, um, the light is, is bright and spectacular and very heavy and yellow in some ways. I find it quite harsh. It can be a harsh light. And you get a sense of that in these paintings. Dusty colors, yellows, earth tones, also vibrant reds. The Sandia Mountain glows a watermelon color at night. And the sunsets out west are, are really different from those in London. They do have bright reds and pinks in them in a way I have never seen here. Uh, it's not just yellows and purples and, and blues. So he was in Urbana for about two and a half years. And after graduating, he accepted a teaching position in the middle of the country. We call it the Midwest, but you have to understand it's thousands of miles away from the West Coast. And it is the climate is extremely distinct from Albuquerque or from the West Coast, where Diebenkorn had spent most of his life. The winters are frigid, snowstorms, ice storms, blizzards, not necessarily the most temperate or enjoyable climate. He was teaching drawing to architecture students. And I think neither the environment nor the teaching was that compelling 
for him, but he produced some absolutely exquisite paintings there. And the Urbana series, it lasted a year. He was quite prolific. And it's notable because it's one of the rare moments when he, his work doesn't really embrace his environment. You don't really see a lot necessarily of Urbana seeping into the work. But you do see Matisse-like colors and a well-known Diebenkorn scholar, Gerald uh, Nordlin, commented that Diebenkorn had seen a Matisse exhibition in LA before moving to Urbana and he feels that those colors were seeping in as a result of really appreciating and spending time with Matisse's work during that exhibition. And particularly, you'll see in the painting on the left called Urbana Number no. 2. When I mention the subtitle of this work, you might be able to see a bit of figuration in it as well. It's called The Archer. You can see the bow at upper left and maybe a Sagittarius-like figure as well, holding the bow. And the thing with Diebenkorn is he always broke his own rules elegantly and he often admonished his children not to see figuration in the work. And yet there are these select moments where some of it slides in. And I think, you know, he was always challenging himself. So he chose not to teach a second year in Urbana. I actually was corrected yesterday and told to pronounce it Urbana. I've never lived there. So apparently the locals call it Urbana. <laughs> so I'm trying to change my ways. Um, he moved back to Northern California. He didn't have a position. He actually trained to drive cabs, and then shortly thereafter, I don't know if he actually did drive cabs, but he was prepared to do that. He did receive a teaching position shortly after moving back to the Bay Area, and he continued his abstract pursuits in Berkeley for the first few years he was there, and these are two lovely examples. Neither of these are in this exhibition. There are three wonderful, um, similarly beautiful paintings in this exhibition. And if you see, from Albuquerque to Urbana to Berkeley, the palette shifts quite dramatically, and the sense of light and space changes. Now, Diebenkorn was not painting landscapes. These were not landscape paintings. He was very adamant about that. And yet, they do have a topographical quality. They have a landscape-like feel, and that's no mistake. He had flown from San Francisco or he had flown from Albuquerque to San Francisco when he was studying um, in New Mexico. And he really appreciated uh, what he saw from the window of that plane, the idea of process in the land. You could see the scarring in the earth from people working fields or developing land. And that idea of process was something he wanted to get into his work. And as you walk through this exhibition, it's much more evident when you see the works in person, the pentimenti, the layering of, of paint on the canvas. He really lets you see the building up and the process and history of the painting. And that's true throughout his career. It's particularly evident in the later Ocean Park series paintings, but you can see it everywhere. Um, so there is a landscape-like feel, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier. He may not have been intending to paint landscapes, but the landscape captured him. It was unintentional, but everywhere he moved, there's something of the feel of those environments in each body of work. He's painting abstractly. By 1955, largely as a result of those beautiful Berkeley abstract paintings, he had become extremely well-known as a West Coast abstract expressionist. He's quite young and doing very well. And to give you a sense of what was going on on the East Coast, the New York School, of course, William de Kooning 
Jackson Pollock, two well-known artists. He had met de Kooning in 46 when he was living briefly in New York State and traveling into the city um, to check out exhibitions and, and meet with people. Um, and of course, he'd seen the work in reproduction and was familiar with what was going on with the abstract expressionists. So first generation abstract expressionists represented here. Second generation, of course, Frankenthaler and Mark Rothko at left. And Rothko is often brought up in relation to Diebenkorn. I think Rothko's paintings kind of hum in a way. You can stand in front of them and they kind of hum. There's a synesthetic quality. And Diebenkorn's sing in a different register. They're quite different. You really need to spend time with his work as well. But they operate differently. They, they seep out a little more slowly. Something happened quite unexpectedly in the mid-50s. Diebenkorn stopped painting abstractly. And this was certainly unexpected. You know, he was doing very well. I think his dealers were quite surprised. Uh, but he was a man who was quite independent. He, may have, uh, he was reserved as a person, but he had quite a bit of confidence in, in what he was doing. And I think he simply didn't care what other people thought or expected of him. This is a painting show in 63 that shows a nice selection of work from the mid-50s. And what he was exploring in the figurative work in Berkeley grew exponentially once he started painting figuratively. And I actually want to read a quote um, from Diebenkorn talking about this change, this rather drastic change in his painting style. And he made this comment in 69, um, thinking back and remembering that moment when he had shifted quite unexpectedly to figurative work. I can remember that when I stopped ab abstract painting and started figure painting, it was as though a kind of constraint came in that was welcomed because I had felt that in the last of the abstract paintings, around 55, it was almost as though I could do too much too easily. There was nothing hard to come up against. And suddenly, the figure paintings fur furnished a lot of this. So he was an artist who didn't want to be repetitive, didn't want things to be too easy, quite clearly. Two of these paintings are in this exhibition. I'll just walk through them. The painting at left is actually a portrait of Phyllis Diebenkorn, his wife, from 1957. That's not in the show. But Girl on a Terrace from 1956 is. Then there's Interior with View of Ocean. And then at far right, Woman by the Ocean, which is also in this exhibition. And they're quite vibrant paintings. Here's some more examples of some wonderful Berkeley figurative paintings. So in Berkeley, he started making large figure paintings. He was doing still life paintings as well. Um, of course, life model drawings, which he had quietly started doing as soon as he moved to Berkeley. So while he may have been painting these gorgeous abstract compositions for the first three years in his studio, on Wednesday nights, he was meeting with buddies, friends, and, and making wonderful, lovely, uh, life drawings, which continued throughout the Berkeley era. What I find fascinating about the life drawings and the figure paintings is that the, the faces are inevitably obscured. They're never completely finished, and they're never looking at the viewer. They're not portraits. The figure is just one part of an overall composition. He's really focused on everything going on. And in fact, if you were to vacate the figures, if you were to remove them from these paintings, in many ways, they're quite strong precedents to Ocean Park paintings, if you just look at the backgrounds, where he's really focused on these the horizon lines and horizontal and vertical lines and diagonals. And so there's something brewing in the work even before he transitions to abstraction again, about 10 years later. 
these are just lovely nudes. I love the small painting on the right. It's called Pink Stripe, and it was in the Berkeley series exhibition, which took place, I guess it was a year ago, year and a half ago. It's just a lovely little painting. He did a number of still lifes, which for me feel more like portraits than any of the figure paintings or drawings. And uh, Gretchen, I'm going to quote you because you said something lovely about these objects at some point. Um, they're quite small. These two images are of works in this exhibition. And he used these objects daily, and he really loved the, the, the form and the function. And for that reason, they have an intimacy, and they're, they're accessible in a way that the figures aren't. And I find that somewhat charming, so let me grab that quote by Gretchen Diebenkorn Grant. And this is from an unpublished talk that Gretchen gave some years ago. My father was very taken with useful objects. By that, I mean a really well-made hammer, a pair of pliers, kitchen implements, or old, well-worn tools. He appreciated form as it related to function in a very particular way that interests me very much. He also was painting landscapes and cityscapes. And this is, if not inevitable, a, quite an organic evolution in his work because the previous abstract explorations, of course, had landscape-like qualities, topographical qualities, even if they weren't capturing the actual landscape. Cityscape number one is in the collection of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and is one of his most well-known kind of landscape paintings, um, beloved, if not by me, by, well, I love it, but by many, many people, and it is in this exhibition. And it reminds me of the work of many Impressionists who may have captured, they captured at a certain moment in time when uh, the landscape out in the country was being developed quite rapidly, so you may have, you know, a bunch of dudes hanging out on a river and then off in the background you see a factory be being built. This is actually the edge of the city, either suburbia or the city proper. So on the left-hand side you have all these buildings and on the right-hand side you see fields. There's a sidewalk that runs through it and it looks like one of the fields is being developed. So he's capturing this very particular moment in time. And of course at this point, if this was a real space, it's completely different and completely built up by this point. And the landscapes have a dynamism about them, a sense of movement that doesn't exist in the figure paintings. The figure paintings, to me, capture like just a little slice of life, one little moment. And these, uh, these just feel more dynamic. And they're also quite bright. Some of the interiors and, and, and figure paintings can be quite dark. They're not somber, but they're more subdued. And these if he wasn't painting outside, and he really wasn't, he wasn't a plein air painter, he certainly is capturing the sense of the light outside in these works. I'm showing you these because there's such a strong relationship with the Ocean Park work for me, the work that was to follow, when you see a figurative work like this. Diebenkorn had good friends who owned the Santa Cruz Island, and uh, friends from Stanford, Carrie Stanton, and he would often travel there with his family and paint, and this little work, uh, at the right is one of the works he produced there in 1961. And then at left we have this lovely painting, a much larger work called Horizon Ocean View. So there's a rivalry between Northern and Southern California. Some of you who've lived in California may be aware of this. Southern California is seen as a little bit flaky, la-la land. I can say more, but I won't. My father was born and raised in Northern California 
I've never lived there. I lived for five years in Southern California, and I tend to agree with some of the stereotypes. So, you know, Diebenkorn being from Northern California, I think no one really expected him to move to LA, not even him, but he had taught for a summer um, in LA, and UCLA had been trying to poach him and bring him down for some years, and he finally agreed. And in 1966, he accepted a teaching position at the University of California, Los Angeles. And he and Phyllis uh, moved to Santa Monica, which is just left of LA. It's really all of a part. It's San Santa Monica and LA are really the same thing, but Santa Monica flanks the ocean. And Ocean Park is a neighborhood in Santa Monica, named after a theme park that was out on a pier with a Ferris wheel and whatnot. And although that theme park is no longer there, the neighborhood has retained the name Ocean Park. Just to give you a background of where that, the, the title of the series came from. So when he first moved to Santa Monica and started working in Ocean Park, he had a very, very small studio with no windows in a building on Main Street at the corner of Ashland and Main. And Sam Francis also worked in the building. And Sam Francis, some months later, six or nine months later, moved out of the building. And Diebenkorn moved into that studio. And uh, there were lovely windows that looked out onto the street. And fairly quickly, the size of the work and the content of the work, the subject matter, if there is uh, such a thing with an abstract work, shifted. So he talked about um, the paintings becoming much larger, much flatter, and very quickly, the figure disappearing altogether. And here we can see an image of the studio and an image of one of the early Ocean Park paintings, Ocean Park number 27. And you can see that he's working on it in the image at right, it hangs on the wall. And you see the window, which is an important element. It was pretty unexpected when he shifted to figurative painting at this time. There was a lot going on in Los Angeles. It was kind of a very freewheeling environment, and I think it surprised a lot of people, including his daughter, who had recently been married and was invited to come visit the studio. She was living in Northern California at the time with her husband, uh, Richard Grant. And this is an image that her husband took of her viewing this new body of work for, this, for the first time. And if I can quote you, you had said you were initially shocked because you weren't expecting to see the figurative work. And yet, as with most people, quite quickly, people came to accept and embrace this, this new body of work. I'm focusing on the window here because it did influence these abstract paintings in some ways. He drew a small number of untitled works. Here's one, Untitled View from Studio Ocean Park from 1969, while he was focusing on larger abstract paintings and a number of abstract drawings as well. And these quite literally capture the window. But even this painting is a response to the window. And there's a lot of um, experimentation in the earliest Ocean Park works, the first three years of the series, they hadn't yet crystallized into a very recognizable format that everybody knows as Ocean Park. They're all quite beautiful. This one's quite beautiful, but it has a different compositional logic than the works that came later. And it does, in a very recognizable way, once you know about the window, capture an essence of that window, which we used to call a transom window, although that's not quite accurate. But as you can see, the window cranks out at an angle. And 
as someone who is very interested in geometric abstraction, the, the idea of that window percolates through the work early on and, and as you go through the series. I also like this work because it, for me, it has the feel of a stained glass window, these panels and expanses of color that are articulated by wide white bands. And you see that in just a few works right at this moment, and then it goes away completely. So I'm going to show you a few images of what's going on in LA at that time. You know, he was never responding directly to what's going on around him. Diebenkorn was very well read, very aware of what was going on in his environment. He was looking at a lot of work, doing a lot of studio visits, reading a lot of magazines, going to a lot of shows. But his work was never, he was certainly not trying to engage with um, what may have been on the vanguard. If you think about it, to move to LA at a time when LA is a radical place, um, artistically and politically, and to begin painting large abstract paintings was so traditional, it was radical. And he, as when he had shifted to figurative work in the mid-50s, very quickly achieved equal success with these large abstract paintings in spite of being out of step with his contemporaries. And I think that says a lot about him as an artist, that he had complete artistic independence and his work was you know, repeatedly quite successful in spite of never quite fitting in with his contemporaries. So, John Baldessari, one of the artists working, still working in Los Angeles, one of the fathers of conceptual art. So the idea that the artwork, it's not about putting paint on canvas, it's about the idea imbued in the work. And this is actually a pretty funny painting, uh, which sums it all up. What is painting? Do you sense how all the parts of a good picture are involved with each other? not just placed side by side. Art is a creation for the eye and can only be hinted at with words. And of course, he's using words on a canvas to convey this. You also had many artists exploring uh, ideas of perception, people working with light and space and technology, and Robert Irwin, Bob Irwin is one of these artists, using new materials. So this is cast acrylic, which was a very new material for artists to use at that time, with acrylic paint, and really it's the shadows that are cast on the wall, which are of great interest. So he's using idea of perception um, at, you know, to realize an artwork. Performance art, perhaps Chris Burden, one of the most well-known. This is his work shoot, and the backstory is he had had an affair with the guy who's holding the rifle. He had had an affair with that guy's wife, um, and he had asked him to shoot him in the arm, and the guy really did. So this is one, one of his more aggressive performances that took place in Southern California, and he had many aggressive performance pieces that took place in in Southern California at this time. But as you can see, it was an environment that was rife with experimentation and really pushing the boundaries of what was art at the time. And this was the environment in which Stephen Korn was producing his large Ocean Park works, such as these two. Ocean Park number 24, which is in the collection of the Yale University Art Gallery, and Ocean Park number 36 from my previous institution. I was a curator at the Orange County Museum of Art when I organized the Ocean Park show. Something that surprised me very much was how differently this painting in particular operated once it was hung alongside its brethren. So when I was originally speaking with the Orange County Museum of Art, I was living in London. I had just returned here and um, started a PhD course at the Courtauld. And they asked me, they were trying to get me to move back and, and they really wanted me to do a Diebenkorn show. So they called me up and asked, 
what do you think of Diebenkorn? We have this great painting in our collection. We're thinking we need to engage with, with what we have, the strengths of our collection. And I thought, surely an ocean park show has been done. It's his most famous body of work, his largest body of work, the longest period of time over which he made any work. And, you know, we called the foundation and found out fairly quickly that it had never been done, which is a shock. So I thought, oh, absolutely, I will do a Diebenkorn show. I love the work. And, um, and I'm going to be very honest, this was not one of my favorite paintings. I thought, okay, well, obviously I'll put it in the show and we'll see if it holds up. And something really wonderful happened. When it was hung near its brethren, it was a powerhouse. And there's something really wonderful about that moment because you realize he made these works, he made them as a family. He would choose his exhibitions, sit in his studio after he created a body of work, both paintings and works on paper, and select them for his gallery exhibitions and they would go out into the world as a family. And then they would be dispersed as people purchased them and they would go off into the world. And for the most part, his work is shown out of context because while almost every major museum in the United States has an Ocean Park painting, there are only two that have more than one. And so they always hang just as, you know, kind of a totemic work hanging alone if they're hung at all, because as you know, museums rarely show everything in their permanent collections. But you rarely get a sense of context or theme or variety with Diebenkorn. In a way, he's a victim of his own success in this way. And so people often ask, why don't people know his work better here or even in the States? People have constantly been calling him one of the best painters of the 20th century. And yet he's often equally called under-recognized. And I think it is because it's been difficult for people to acquire um, a large number of the works, institutions as well as most individuals. Everybody loves the Ocean Park painting, so I thought I might show you a little overview of my exhibition at my home institution. <clears throat> I'm constantly asked about it, so I thought I would indulge this request. At every venue in the States, I started with this uh, painting, Ocean Park number 27, which is in the Brooklyn Museum of Arts collection. I just think it's a stellar work, and it's also the, one of the earlier works in the exhibition. It's just a nice entrance work. The painting at left is Ocean Park number 11, very early. The first five paintings in the series, while some of them are extant, they'll never be seen. They weren't, the artist didn't intend them to go out into the world and be exhibited. So this is one of the very early works and this was a very special opportunity to show this quite unusual work because it is horizontal and it does have a sense of landscape and field and topography, but quite different from the rest of the work. So very quickly after he started this series, the works became vertical and quite large. And the size was determined by the studio itself. So it, the canvases were as large as he could carry up the stairs and into the studio. And he wanted to incorporate an idea of reach into the work, so literally you know, reaching up, reaching out, and he was a tall man, over six feet tall. So the works are quite tall, and I feel like they really embrace the viewer. When you stand in front of them, they're almost like altar pieces in which there are no figures, no religious figures, but they 
they hug you in a way. I mean, you stand before them and they seep out slowly. And I always feel a little bit jealous of the guards because they get to stand in the galleries for hours and just kind of meditate with these wonderful works. The, the last day of this exhibition in Orange County, I walked through the show. Every day at work, I would walk into the galleries, and every day I would see something new, and that's the strength of, the, of, of Diebenkorn's work, is you can see something new every day. But the last day, there was a gentleman standing in a corner with his eyes kind of closed and kind of oddly, and I'll demonstrate. And he seemed pretty content. I didn't know if he was crazy, or I didn't know what was going on. But he heard me walk in, and he opened his eyes, and I approached him, and, and he said, oh, I come here every day, and I meditate. This is the perfect place for me to meditate. So he was meditating. And he was a member, so he could come every day without paying an entrance fee every day. And I just thought, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing, too, by walking through the gallery every day and, and, and living with the work as much as I can. So this is the second gallery in a rather large presentation of Ocean Park, but these are still early works, and I talked about how the first three years um, there was a lot of experimentation going on. You can see that in the variety of these works. So at left you have kind of broad expanses of paint. There is geometric abst abstraction, but it's, it's not tight. It's kind of larger areas of exploration. And you can just see kind of the evolution of the series in some ways. Looking into the next gallery, the work you're looking at through the entryway is in the collection of the Corcoran, and it's a stellar work. So by the 70s, the works had really crystallized into a very recognizable format, which you can see in the Corcoran work. So there are um, horizontal and vertical lines that are mostly grouped along the top and one side of the painting with expanses of reworked space at center. And you get this wonderful sense of, of Pentimentian process because he does not obliterate everything he's done before he achieves resolution at the end of the painting. He didn't know what the painting would look like when he started it. It really was a process and it was a labored and pained process. So when I call this talk, Write as Calm, I'm speaking about the sense of process and labor and the difficulty with which he approached the work. And when you look at the work and spend a lot of time standing in front of the work, you really get a sense of that process and the labor that went into it. But in the end, he achieves almost a perfect stillness. There is a, a beautiful sense of calm at the end of that process. Diebenkorn talked about not wanting to have things come too easy to him. And the painting you see, the blue painting, which is very different from the others in this gallery, I think um, it was important for me to show that work, to show that there is always variety. He was always pushing himself within the series, and that's a work that's in Nebraska at a, the Sheldon Museum. The Sheldon Museum has an incredible collection, but it's in the middle of the country in a state that people don't go out of their way to travel to. It's a university art museum. And every exhibition that I've done, I always approach the Sheldon, because I think most people haven't seen the work that they have. They have amazing work, but most people haven't seen it. And I thought this was like a very nice counterpoint to the very recognizable Ocean Park paintings. One of his students who 
worked with Jibunkorn, not as a studio assistant in the traditional sense. No one ever painted for him or, or worked on canvases for him, but they might help him around the office or with letters, things like that. Um, someone who had worked with him in that capacity, who was a student, saw this image. I was interviewing him, and he owned a small uh, cigar box lid at the time, and so I really want, just wanted to have a conversation with him. He asked if he could see the checklist of the Ocean Park show, so I said, sure. And he looked at that work and, and commented, oh, it's so funny, I remember that painting. And I remember when I looked at it, I, what I saw was the garden gate, Diebenkorn's garden gate, and when I mentioned that to Diebenkorn, Diebenkorn was like, oh man, like, it's not something Diebenkorn intended to do or saw. And quite frankly, when I look at the painting, I can't see a garden gate. I don't understand what that reference is at all. And yet I thought it was an interesting story just about him being exquisitely sensitive to his environment. In addition to these beautiful, large Ocean Park paintings, Diebenkorn made smaller Ocean Park paintings, some of which are on cigar box lids. He was a smoker and the cigar boxes you know, may be used as receptacles in the studio for paints or brushes. But in 1976 and 79, he actually removed the lids from 13 of these boxes and painted lovely Ocean Park paintings on the lids, whether wood or cardboard, and gave them as gifts to friends and families, family members. And they have all the same concerns of the larger works. And for those of you who are artists, you understand perhaps better than anyone, it's pretty difficult to have that facility to work on a minuscule scale as well as on a large scale. It's, it's quite remarkable. Here's more of a close-up. The exhibition in these galleries have three of the Ocean Park um, cigar box lids, so I hope you spend some time with them. And for me, they really, um, they demonstrate Diebenkorn's relationship and concern with Mondrian. Of course, Mondrian never painted a diagonal. I mean, if he, with his lozenge paintings, he turned them on the side and, and the edge of the canvas might be a diagonal, but he had very stringent rules for himself about what he would paint, and it was only horizontal and vertical lines. And Diebenkorn had no problem painting diagonals, diagonal lines, but these works, to me, operate very similarly to the way Mondrian's paintings do. Now, a lot of Mondrian's work is quite small, and it can cannibalize a wall, a very small lozenge painting. You can put it on a wall, and it can hold 20 feet, 30 feet, one small painting. Similarly, these cigar box lids are able to do that. I've grouped them, but one small canvas can really occupy a rather large space, and that reminded me quite a bit of Mondrian's work. Some close-up views of the cigar box lids. The work at left, I love. You can see he just left the lettering to show through, so this is another uh, example of a pentimenti, just using what he had, what existed, not trying to obliterate it, but using it as part of the composition. This is, I probably have too many images here, but this is just an image of one of the works on paper galleries in the Ocean Park show. Works on paper were a significant part of Diebenkorn's practice, and they were not studies for the work, they were explorations in their own right, and he made them um, contemporaneously to the paintings. And as I mentioned before, when he would choose work for an exhibition, for a gallery show, he would select works on paper along with paintings. They were of equal import and you know they would be shown together oftentimes. And many of his exhibitions were only works on paper. 
I love this work at right. If you go into the galleries and read the inscription at the bottom, it says, for Phyllis on our 32nd. It was a, a gift to his wife on their 32nd wedding anniversary. There was one gallery in the Ocean Park show that I called the chapel because all four paintings, and there were only four paintings in that gallery, had a very delicate feel. They had a different sensibility than many of the other very strong, um, more boldly um, composed paintings. And for me, it was like the apotheosis of Ocean Park, kind of just dying and going to heaven, literally. <laughs> So this is an image of two of those works. The smaller work is actually a drawing or a painting on paper. These are works from the very end of the series. Diebenkorn actually stopped painting large canvases in 85, but continued the Ocean Park series for three more years before moving to Northern California, where he didn't retire. They, he and Phyllis bought a farmhouse, and he continued to work in the barn, but making smaller works on paper in both an abstract and a figurative vein. Just more images. So as I mentioned previously, Diebenkorn never <clears throat> thought of the Ocean Park paintings or the early abstract paintings as landscapes, nor did he feel he was trying to capture a sense of place. And yet, he inevitably did in every location in which he worked, and I think this quote really speaks to that. I see the light only at the end of working on a painting. I mean, I discover the light of a place gradually, and only through painting it. These are images of the Ocean Park neighborhood from the 60s and 70s. And then getting back to that Frank O'Hara poem, I want to close with this quote. I can never accomplish what I want, only what I would have wanted had I thought of it beforehand. So I welcome any questions, comments? I think there are microphones. So if you just raise your hand, someone will hand you a microphone. What? Great. Um, I'm curious why Diebenkorn's relatively unknown in the UK up until now. It's a tremendous opportunity to mm -hmm. see his work. And I wondered if that's because he created quite large works in the, mm. in the USA and it was difficult for them to travel or they're in quite a fragile state. Uh, please may you shed some light on this. It's a very good question. I'm not sure I completely understand myself, but I think one of the reasons is he hasn't been shown in nearly 25 years. There was a beautiful Diebenkorn exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in 1991, painting retrospective, and I think some of you probably saw that exhibition. But certainly younger audiences, um, younger generations haven't been exposed to the work. Also, he was out of step with his contemporaries. If you're reading a survey of painting, Western painting, whether American or American and European, it's not easy to slot in an artist who's working against the tide. You know, he's kind of, there are these guys painting figuratively, and then he's over here painting abstractly in California. Or prior to that, you have all the abex artists, and then here's this guy who's in Berkeley painting figuratively. So it was hard to, it's hard to slot him in if you're doing a broad view. He doesn't fit in nicely. So while he was very acclaimed and extremely well-known in the States, and in fact, repeatedly exhibited in Europe, I mean, he was in the Venice Biennale twice, he was in several very important group shows across Europe, you know, not only in London and in Scotland, but 
in, in Sweden and Italy and Germany, just again and again and again, he was exhibited. And yet I think it, it, especially during the Ocean Park era, it was difficult to purchase a painting because his works were selling out. And even museums had to line up to get a work and they couldn't choose which work they wanted. They were told there is an Ocean Park painting which you can purchase if you like and often it was sight unseen. They didn't have, you know, so it was quite competitive um, to get one of his works. And so he perhaps is a victim of his own success, or yeah, you know, like it was simply difficult to get. There are works in private collections in Europe, and indeed even in London, we've borrowed some lovely work from, from collections in London, but not in any major institutions. I think Tate has an etching, and they had for a while a lovely Ocean Park drawing on view, but that was lent from the UBS collection. Um, so if you're going to a major museum here, you're not gonna see Diebenkorn. In the States, it's very easy to see Diebenkorn. It might just be one painting, but you can see him. Yes? I was going to ask the other year, and I'd not read a book that I was given in art college back in, when I was 20, so 50 years ago, Gombrich's History of Art, mm -hmm. and it starts with yeah. the foreword, which I should have read, was there's no such thing as art, only artists. But uh, I look at uh, Diebenkorn, and also that it reminds me of how he's in a search. Maybe, I'm not so sure. Was it modern man in search of a soul, one would ask, in his paintings when you make references to chapels and things like that within his in his work in these galleries in the states i mean would would that be associated with that type of spiritual search that Deben Cohn was on or not i use that terminology but i would say no i think he was i think music would be more if you're going to talk about spirituality i would say it would be music and a musical composition that would be more of an inspiration for him rather than a spiritual search i don't think he was particularly religious when I see the paintings, I definitely see kind of alter pieces in the sense that they hum and they embrace you and they have an insistency, but they have been, you know, the images of any figures have been vacated in a way. But I don't think he was trying to operate that way. I would love to hear what Gretchen has to say about that. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you can just nod yes or no. I mean... But in a way, um, painting was very spiritual for him. So that's it's kind of a complicated thing to talk yeah. about. But it had no foundation in any organized religion, certainly. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I just wondered if um, if Richard Davenport had any um, interaction with the Bay Area group of painters. He uh, was a Bay David Area. Parks, Nathan yeah. Oliveira. Absolutely. I have a book and, uh, called The Bay Area Artist, and he, he's in there. He is. And I just wondered how much cross fertilization went, went on there. Those are artists he knew quite well and worked with, some of whom he studied with, and then he became their colleague when he started teaching in 47. So, David Park, Elmer Bischoff, and ultimately Nathan Oliveira, he knew quite well. And in fact, most of them were drawing on Wednesday nights together, ultimately. So he and these other artists became very well known as Bay Area figurative artists, you know, the mid to late uh, 50s, yes. 
and, and into the mid-60s, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was very interested when you said that he taught architectural students, because an, as an architect myself, I find the Ocean Park series, mm -hmm. obviously, the, yeah. the, the grid and the, and the spatial mm -hmm. uh, uh, play, really wonderful. Um, and I wondered if that actually affected him in any, in any way, do you think? And, and also the Pentimenti, which mm -hmm. you get on architectural pencil right. drawings and so on. Um, I don't know. I can't answer on his behalf, but I can tell you that a lot of architects love the work. And he was working in the map making division when he was in the military. He didn't find that he made the best maps because maybe they weren't quite as pristine as an architect would have made them. So certainly he had that history of, of making maps and, and, and working topographically that way early on um, professionally. But I, I just, I've never read anything that he said about the relationship to architecture, but there's certainly an affinity. Can mm -hmm. I just ask one more question? Sure. When is the catalogue resume going to come out? There it's a great question. 2016. It's, it's, it is actually coming out. Yes. The first volume. Oh, great. Four volumes. Okay. So four volumes, all printed simultaneously in the spring, late spring, next year. September? In September next year. So stay tuned. We have the foundation and the family right up here, so they're correcting me as I go. Yes, so you'll see a lot more work in, in that soon. Yes. <clears throat> Looking at the Ocean Park series, mm -hmm. how long would it take to complete a painting? You talked about some of them more or less as a family, but mm. it's not, do we know if they were actually, I mean, and are they chronologically named actually, were they actually done in that order? Mm -hmm. I mean, they were painted serially, he numbered them, so it's Ocean Park 1 through 145, there's some half numbers, some are no longer extant because he may have destroyed them or he may have repainted them and renumbered them, but they were numbered sequentially. And he was uneasy with the idea of calling them a series, but he did recognize that it was a series, whether he liked it or not, just because the way it operated out into the world. So there's a quote in my Ocean Park essay that I've footnoted, kind of, it's a quote by him acknowledging that, yes, I didn't intend it to be a series, but it is a series. And certainly the way that he worked, whether the early abstract or the late abstract, was to name the works after the location in which he worked, and then to simply number the works as he went. And he produced Ocean Park work over, you know, just over 20 years. I mean, it's a, it's a large body of work, but they did take a long time to make, and I don't think there's any one answer. I mean, he really would labor, so some paintings would take a lot longer than others. The, the works on paper were very extemporaneous, and in fact offered a little relief if he hit you know, a wall with a painting, he'd just go and quickly do something on a work on, with a work on paper on an adjacent wall. And for me, I love seeing images of the studio because you'll see a wall in which he's pinned up tons of drawings and then the painting, a painting or two will lean against the wall. He wasn't making a ton of these Ocean Park paintings at one go. There weren't a lot produced at one time. He made at least 145, but this is over 20 years. So it's he wasn't cranking them out. You know, it was, it was quite labored. So maybe four months for one painting. But because he always reserved the right to change something, as long as the work was in his studio, he might do something to it. It might sit there and he might change it 
little bit. So there are a lot of stories about that happening, even after work left his studio. That would happen on occasion. Um, do you think there is still this sort of sense of a family within his other works, um, as you can see in Ocean Parks, or is it Park, or is it really just in that one? That's a good question. I don't know to the extent the other works may have been created as a family. I know, you know, he would sit in his studio in Ocean Park, he would be working on the work, whether he was finished with what he saw as a body of work from which he would select, or whether he was just working on one painting and thinking about it, he would work and then sit in a chair and look at the work and kind of contemplate it and then go back to the painting and there was this real dialogue with the work and also if you're talking about the idea of resolution when you look at it from afar versus close up it shifts quite differently so not only was he kind of stepping back and looking at each individual painting and making decisions he also used a mirror so he could kind of look at the composition in inverse and the drawings, when you go into the galleries, you'll note a lot of them have a lot of pinholes on each corner because he was often changing the orientation. It's quite obvious in the drawings and moving them around so that he was consistently kind of considering what he would, had done. And I don't know, I, that's a really good question. I really don't know, you know, in Berkeley, how he was approaching these different um, thematic works that he was creating and how they went out into the world. I know we can look at the exhibitions, but the exhibitions that were curated by museums, obviously the curators were selecting that work, and the gallery shows are perhaps a more true revelation of his own decision making. And what do you think? I mean, yeah, so Andrea Ligori from the foundation is going to add to that. We do have some gallery correspondence, mm -hmm. or correspondence between Deben Korn and Eleanor Poindexter of the Gallery in New York, mm -hmm. who represented him during the Berkeley figurative years. And in those letters, we can see him saying, I can't send you anything yet because they belong together as a group and I'm mm -hmm. not finished. Okay. And we can also, um, <coughs> add, I can also add, I think that there are some letters where he's indicating exactly how a show should be hung. Mm -hmm. So he cared very much, and Gretchen might add to this, um, the placement uh, in the gallery so that the works continued to relate to each other once they'd left the studio. Mm -hmm. So it seems that that was a consistent concern, at least Berkeley as well as Ocean Park. And that doesn't surprise me, but I just couldn't answer that myself for Berkeley. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's all we have time for. So on behalf of the Academy, I'd like to thank Sarah for giving the talk tonight and also the family and the foundation for being here.